This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Manchester United out of Europe, bottom of their group, worst ever Champions League performance. Perhaps there's no shame in losing a tight game against Bayern, unbeaten in 40 Champions League group games, but they offered nothing. Right now, United fans are getting very little and despite the obvious problems with the ownership, how much pressure is Eric Ten Hag under? Copenhagen benefit, a brilliant campaign for them and richly deserved qualification for the knockouts. Their budget is around a 20th of Manchester United's. And with United out and Newcastle struggling, there's a great opportunity for some coefficient chat. Elsewhere, a draw for Arsenal who topped the group, but no Europa League for Sevilla. How did that happen? They win that tournament every year. Also, we'll discuss the horrific attack on the referee in Turkey from a club president, the gripping changes to the amortisation rules, and Mark Langland's Christmas dinner. Again, I'm sure we've discussed the annual sprout already. All that plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Filippo Claire, bonjour, ça va? Ça va, Max. Yes. Jonathan Faduba, hello. Good morning, Max. Uh, hello, Mark Langdon from the Racing Post. Hi, Max. Uh, let's start Old Trafford then. Uh, Manchester United nil by Munich one. Harry Kane's little flick to Kingsley Coman. Uh, the difference between these sides. Um, four points from six games is their lowest in any Champions League campaign. Uh, 15 goals conceded, the most by a Premier League side uh, in any group stage of the competition. Um, Jonathan, you're a, a United fan, aren't you? I mean, this is, it is, it was bleak yesterday. Like it, there was, I sort of thought, okay, look, keep it tight for 40, 50 minutes is okay, but there was there was just nothing. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a bit of a nothing burger, a bit of a disappointment. Um, I have to say that didn't really think it was anything out of the ordinary for what Manchester United have been doing this season. So I don't think anyone really expected much else. Um, I suppose going into the match, the, the interesting thing about what Ten Hag did was he changed the tactics slightly and went from the kind of the worry before the match was that United had been so kamikaze in their approach. All the games are so open. It's like basketball end-to-end, like the Chelsea game, for example, was a really good um, display of that. Uh, so Ten Hag changed the tactics slightly and moved Bruno to sort of like a more of a def- defensive midfield role, essentially. Uh, he was a bit more deep and Scott McTominay was actually ahead of him as like more of a 10. So they switched, switched positions and tried to be more defensively solid, which was, I suppose it showed at least that he's trying to do something to address the, the lack of balance in midfield. Um, especially in transitions. Uh, but I think the key thing that they maybe forgot is that they needed to win the game. <laughs> so the one game <laughs> the one game to decide to be tactically conservative was maybe not the one that you absolutely have to win. It kind of worked to a certain extent, but of course, you always felt that Bayern had an extra gear or two to go up. And, and, and they did that, really, uh, in the second half. They, there was a spell early in the second half where they just started to dominate possession. Um, and you could tell a goal was kind of coming. Amrabat made a little mistake in, in his pressing. Um, I think the injury for Harry Maguire didn't help. I mean, United, let's be fair, they have had a lot of injuries this season as well. I mean, there's a lot of talk about Newcastle's injuries, but United have had you know a lot of injuries that maybe don't get mentioned so much in, in Ten Hag's defence. And obviously, Johnny Evans' positioning for the goal, uh, for, for Kingsley Coman's goal, was a little bit, you know, he didn't know really whether to come out or stay, and that created the space in behind. It's just poor, isn't it? It's just emblematic of a really bad season, and... When I say bad, you've got to look at the sort of context of the last decade. It's it's almost one of the worst seasons of the last decade. So I know that Ten Hag had a very positive first season, but the the sort of step back from last season is 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 stunning, really. Uh, so yeah, not not a good night, really. Mm. And it's not been a great decade, right? To be the worst of a decade that hasn't been a, <laughs> That's hasn't I mean, been yeah. a great decade, and, and like. I mean, they lost this group, Mark, didn't they, in the games against Copenhagen and Galatasaray? And actually, Copenhagen and Galatasaray were better than I think a lot of people thought they would be. But still, that draw, when the draw is made, if you're United, you're like, we have to come second in this group. Yeah, they they, they should have come second. I mean, you, you mentioned the sort of wage bill there um, at, the, at the top. Um, even with the injuries, I, I, you know, I, I don't think that that's 
a legitimate excuse for finishing bottom um, of this Champions League group. I mean, there were a lot of defensive mistakes um, that have cost them, you know, way. It wasn't the buying game where they've lost, as you say, Max. It was, um, you know, the particularly, I suppose, the Nana errors um, as well in, in sort of key moments um, in the group. Because they, if you go right back to when they played Bayern, they actually played quite well in Munich for the first half an hour. It might have been sort of the best 30 minutes of, of the season, but then um, there, there were, um, you know, big mistakes. And if you can see the amount of goals they have, it becomes really difficult um, to qualify. I, I just find Manchester United a really hard team to weigh up because, you know, our eyes tell us that they're not very good as, and, you know, it has been like this for a decade. And yet you, you just still expect more from them. And I don't know, I don't know why we expect more. It probably is because of, um, you know, the wage spend, but it doesn't really matter who they bring in. Um, you know, it doesn't matter manager or players. Um, it's it just, it's a mess. And to, to need to win a game, to have five shots and only one on target was a meek exit, reminding me, quite a lot actually of Conte's Tottenham exit against um, Milan in the Champions League. Where, oh yes, don't remind uh, me. <laughs> yeah, but where they actually were, it felt like they were playing to save face rather than to actually, you know, to really go on and try to win. And I think had I, I think Ten Hag was worried if they did try to win that game and lose four or five nil, then, um, you know, that's even worse. But I, I, I think you have to try to win. Um, and if you do get Tonk, then, you you, you know, you, you take a thrash in. Um, and, yeah, I, 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 it feels like the end game for him, I think. I, I'm not sure for, when for, he will go. For Ten Hag. I mean, I, I don't see how he can... I mean, I'm not saying maybe this game, and they've got Liverpool on Sunday, and, you know, Maguire and Shaw have just pulled up injured um, as well. But... I, 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 very rare that a manager comes back from kind of this, and I, you know, the, the tone of Jonathan's kind of uh, analysis of that was, you know, as downbeat as sort of every other Manchester United fan. And it's very difficult, I think, to come back from that. Yeah, uh, Lars was on the, the TV with me yesterday, saying probably wouldn't sack Ten Hag because if you bring someone in, you're bringing them into a bin fire, Philippe. So like you could just let Ten Hag sit there. There's no Europe now, one game a week or whatever, and just sort of plod through and maybe try and get fourth or fifth if fifth gets a Champions League spot. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I would agree with you. The other thing is that who would you bring in, to be honest, in the current mess? I do think that I, I'm not trying to make excuses for, for Ten Hag. I'm rather trying to find elements of explanation uh, when we talk about the injuries, um, the fact that played that the way they played, in many ways, Ten Hag didn't have much of a choice. Sancho is out of the of the picture. We know that Martial and Rashford were unavailable, so that limits the options in attack. You look at the back. Um, Lindelof was absent, of course. Lisandro, Varas just come back. Christian Eriksen, who can be a creative player, was also not available. And uh, you carry on. Casemiro, who was actually one of their best players at the beginning of the season, is also absent and for a while. So I don't think it's necessarily the right moment. You know, they're not in danger of relegation. <laughs> They've got to keep in the race for a spot in Europe. Maybe the fifth spot will qualify them for Europe, for the Champions League. More about this later. There's the FA Cup to go, to go for, as um, Ten Hag himself said, but it's same old, same old, same old. You know, I'm, I'm like Jonathan. I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly a Manchester United supporter, but I think it's, it's become the um, plodding mediocrity with the odd burst of brilliance that we've come to expect from Manchester United since uh, Alex Ferguson left. And I, I was looking at actually Manchester United's performance in the Champions League since he had left. It's pathetic. They've reached the uh, quarterfinals twice including once with uh, David Moyes, <laughs> who actually did. They had a pretty decent campaign that year, 2013-14. But other than that, they've exited regularly, round of 16, group phase. They've, they have a major problem in Europe as well, which is not just a, because of Ten Hag. And then um, I, I thought as well that there's this guy, this billionaire coming in, who's going to shake everything up. He still hasn't signed, has he? The, the agreement is, is they've agreed to agree, but they haven't signed the agreement. I mean, what kind of a signal does this give? And, and why would changing a manager who has got a depleted squad 
in which some players are genuinely not pulling their weight and it's not necessarily Ten Hag's fault, how would it make it better to bring in whom, by the way? Zinedine Zidane? Do you think Zinedine Zidane is going to come to Manchester United? Do you think he's mad? Who would you bring in, Max? I've absolutely no idea. I mean, I think the interesting thing about the recruitment for United, be it manager or players, is they, they, they kind of have to sign big players because of who they are. But they can't sign the best players because the best players don't want to go there. So they sign these incredibly talented players that have a problem, like have some sort of issue about them. So they don't get young guys... I mean, I mean, I says Hoyland is a young guy with potential, yes. but it's not working. Like the recruitment is so. But Liverpool has signed Dominic Schoboslai, who is a super player, but he's not top, 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 top class, or he wasn't. Yeah. Uh, Manchester City is one of their best uh, players over the recent past has been Manuel Akanji. Mm. Hello, not a huge signing. Could carry on like that. Sure. I, I don't see. Oh, I had forgotten Mason Mount as well. He's not there, and he's in a way so symptomatic, emblematic of what is wrong with this club. Well, I think there's two main issues there, really. I mean, there's one that you can look at recruitment and we could literally sit here for five hours discussing recruitment because it's been so bad over the last 10 years. Uh, And that's where... I think my limit is four hours on that. That's where we devolve the ownership of it on Ten Hag, though, because recruitment has been uniformly bad for 10 years, pretty much. Um, Ten Hag's own recruitment has been pretty bad. And I think there can be a lot of question marks about that. And I think that's where his job may start to come under scrutiny because... He's signing players and then not playing them, for example. Um, I know Mount's been injured, but even when he was fit, he was kind of on the bench at times. 60 million on a player who was out of contract. What, why, why would that be sanctioned um, when they needed a sort of robust midfielder? Amrabat yesterday, as I mentioned, weak 50-50 yeah, challenge. He's, he's not great, is he? I just don't think he's... He's just not good enough on the ball. I mean, I it's think. like a Carol Poborski sign, sign a player who's had a good sort of, you know, international tournament. Uh, and, you know, I... I I question that. I mean, that even that's on loan. You've had well, Weghorst. You've had, you know, that you could go on for ages about United's recruitment. So that that's one problem. And I think Ten Hag has to take a little bit of ownership of that because the transfers. This, I mean, Anthony is a great example, really. Like he, I think he's had scored zero. I think Jaden Sancho is still the top scorer in for the last player to score for United in the Premier League, the last forward. So that kind of sums up where the forwards at the moment are. are. You've got Martial, whose contract is expiring, but should have probably left the club two or three years ago when he was loaned out to Sevilla. So the recruitment is one area. But I think the area where you start to worry about Ten Hag for me is the the tactical uh, setup of United is is clearly wrong. Um, they're so open on transition. They conceded 15 goals in this group stage against Galatasaray, Copenhagen and, and Bayern Munich. Um, it's just way too many goals to concede. What they tend to do, United, is... Fly, and what really interesting part of this um, last night was Thomas Tuchel's analysis. He In about 20 seconds, he basically obliterated United's whole tactical system before the match in his pre-match interview with, um, with TNT Sport. He said, United leave, they leave too many players. They, they, they attack with kind of like a six. Uh, so they take a risk in, in possession. And he said, like, the, the opportunity is that you can counter-attack them when the ball breaks down. And he said, that's, that's why they're quite vulnerable. Um, and that's what we're going to try and exploit, essentially. And... And he did that. And playing United is quite easy, really. You you wait. Bournemouth did exactly the same thing. You wait for United to fly forward. You wait for the attack to break down because the front three aren't creative enough. There's no real cohesion. Um, if you look at, say, a Liverpool or an Arsenal, when they're attacking, the forwards, the wide forwards and the, and the striker, there's a plan of like what they're going to do to score a goal. Um, United don't have a plan in the sense of they don't cross the ball to a sort of powerful front man, target man who can head the ball. They don't sort of get in behind and make cutbacks that can, you know, to, for tap-ins and things like that. So the wide players can't really beat their man too often. Um, so there's not, there's no like tactical plan up front to, to score goals. And then when the move breaks down, they're so open that within two or three passes, you're in on goal. And this is where I think that he's in serious trouble to Hag in the sense that I can't see the Liverpool game being anything other than four or five nil, like genuinely. And I think that's the thing for United fans. There's, there's almost no hope of going into that game, getting anything. You then look at the next games after that, they've sort of got Villa, West Ham. Unless they change, unless he sticks with what he did against Bayern last night, maybe, and starts to play a bit more conservatively in the midfield, which there were signs there a little bit of encouragement uh, in terms of being a bit more balanced in the midfield, in the transitions, then teams are just going to keep coming to Old Trafford or playing United. And every time the move breaks down, they, they, you know, they don't get back into transition into shape quick enough and they leave themselves so open and... The, the concern for that, just to finalise on that, is that Ten Hag keeps saying, well, the, it was a great performance. 
if you watch his post-match interview, he said it was a very good performance. He said Galatasaray was very good. We've proven in the last few weeks that we can play really well against Chelsea. And, you know, Chelsea could have scored six in that game. It was just a case of they're worse than the United. So it wasn't like a good performance. It was just a case that Chelsea are even worse. So I think that is the worrying thing, that if he genuinely believes that these are good performances, then you start to wonder tactically, is he, does he, is he actually aware of what he's trying to do? Or is he, is he masking it by just pretending it's good and trying to keep morale up? Apart from that, it's great. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I'm on, on Hoyland, uh, Mark. Chris Sutton on the radio yesterday was quite interesting. He said, I don't know if he's good or not because he's so starved of service because obviously there was this big comparison with Hoyland and Kane and Kane had that one moment, right? It's a beautiful touch and we all know he can do that. He didn't really do anything else in the game, but it didn't matter. But, you know, they've got this guy who has scored a few in the Champions League. He's got no Premier League goals. That Sancho stat is unbelievable. But, and he cost a lot of money, Hoyland. He did, um, but I think throwing him into that team, as Jonathan was just saying, that doesn't have a sort of cohesive way of attacking um, just is like lamb to the slaughter of him because, you know, it really, it'd be difficult. I think, I mean, Kane has performed in sort of teams that don't function very well um, kind of previously, but I think it would even be difficult for Harry Kane to kind of just go in at Manchester United and suddenly have fixed all of their problems. God, how deep would he have to drop? <laughs> yeah, well, he would be very deep. Yeah, but I mean, Paul Scholes was on UK um, TV saying that, um, the, the recruitment should have been easy in the, in the summer. They should have just bought Rice and Kane as if it's like that easy to, um, you know, to just buy those players if you're Manchester United now and spend 200 million plus on, on wages. I mean, you know, United have been criticised for going, you know, short term on many of their signings and then they get criticised for thinking longer term with somebody like Hoyland. And I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write him off yet. I think we've seen enough from him individually. It was tough for him in, in this game because United were playing very, um, cautiously. But I think there's been enough in the Champions League and the Premier League to see that there is a player in there. But at the moment, um, you know, it, it's hard for any individual to shine when just the, the unit is broken as it is. So I, I'd lay off him. Um, you know, for the time being. But if you're the Manchester United striker, you've cost a lot of money, you haven't scored a Premier League goal, then you are going to be on the receiving end. I mean, that's just life at a club like United. Would you agree, Mark, as well, that um, Holland is a player who would actually thrive if you had another centre-forward with him? He's more, you know, when you saw him play in Serie A, he was very good playing off players, playing them in. He's quite, he's quite a fighter as well. He's quite a decent finisher. He's no Haaland. He's no Harry Kane. He's a different type of player. He's a good player, but he just has nobody that he can actually create a relationship with up front. He's isolated, for sure. Yeah, yeah completely isolated. So no Europe for Man United. Um, producer Joel says we should move on. We'll do another 20 minutes on United when they get thrashed by Liverpool. <laughs> no Europe for them. Newcastle may not get through. Like They're up against it tonight. What are the implications on whether fifth will be a Champions League spot? Because I think at the start of the season, everyone went, well, if you come fifth, you get the Champions League. But because of coefficients, um, could you explain it as succinctly as possible? You're talking to me here. Uh, <laughs> yes, I chose the wrong guy. But, you know, do your best. No, no, no. I, I've actually tried to understand how this was going to work. And my short answer would be it's too early to say. But there are reasons to be actually worried if indeed not having a fifth spot in the Champions League, in the new expanded 3016 Champions League, which is kicking off in 24-25, uh, if it's a matter to be worried about or if you think it's actually overkill. That's another subject altogether. But the way it is is that the two um, member associations, the two countries which have got the most points over this season, 23-24, will inherit an extra place in the Champions League, direct, group phase. England has been top of those season coefficient for the last three years. West Ham is the current um, Europa Conference League uh, holder. Manchester City is champion of Europe. So quite naturally, people said, you know, English football is dominating Europe. So therefore, it's quite logical that you should get an extra place. The problem is that by shedding two teams, if indeed Newcastle don't qualify, and it's a big if, would actually be... Um, detrimental, very detrimental to the English cause. Because at the moment, as it stands, after last night's game, Mark, you might have checked, uh, I think they've updated the UEFA website now, but as I see it, there are three countries ahead of England at the moment. And these countries are Germany, Spain and Italy, not very surprisingly. Part of the problem is that Germany has uh, got three teams which will take part in the round of 16. 
and will therefore accrue points. Spain, amazingly, thanks to Real Sociedad's amazing performance, I've got four teams, and Italy, I've already got three because Napoli qualified as well. And they've got Milan playing tonight, obviously. So you're fighting against other big leagues, which already have got, will have bigger representation in the Champions League, which weighs uh, far, far more in determining the coefficient than the other competitions. So you need for this fifth spot to be available for two English clubs, you will need a the clubs which are in the Champions League to go as deep as possible in the tournament. And you hope that they're going to do the same thing in the Europa League and even the Conference League as well. So you hope that the Villas and, and the Liverpools will go very, very far. That means final or winning it in order to accrue enough points to ward off the threat posed by the three other uh, big leagues. At the moment, it looks a bit concerning, I must say. I would say, uh, Max, if you are sort of supporting a team that is... Um, you know, in that uh, sort of battle for fifth, if you like, you really are cheering on Newcastle um, against Milan and sort of to pip Paris Saint-Germain for that um, second spot because all wins from the group stage in all three of the competitions are worth two points. Um, so even Europa League for Newcastle could be um, a big deal. And if they were to go out altogether, whatever points are a sort of collected by the other teams going forward, it's averaged out by how many you kind of started off with. So, um, you know, Manchester United and potentially Newcastle would be doing damage um, to, to, to the overall um, picking. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's it'd be, be a cruel twist of fate, I suppose, for Manchester United. Maybe quite poetic if they finish fifth, but their performances in the Champions League ruin their um, sort of Champions League position for next season. Copenhagen came second. It's massive for them. Second time in their history they've made it the knockouts in, in such a difficult group. The scenes at the end are absolutely brilliant. We've mentioned their budget is, is tiny. They scored a lovely goal, had a guy sent off, same player actually, uh, and then Galatasaray sort of bombarded them. It's one amazing scramble at the end of, of that game, but uh, it would have been too little too late. Um, but we should, Jonathan, celebrate that achievement from Copenhagen, shouldn't we? Yeah, and I think you've got a, you've got a I'm glad you mentioned that actually, Max, because you've got to give a massive shout out to, to Copenhagen and what they've done. I feel like a lot of times in the Champions League, there's a lot of talk of teams who were spoken about as if they're just minnows and terrible teams. But I feel like we, you, you do have to acknowledge, I know that it was, uh, listen, Man United should have qualified. I'm not, I'm not ignoring that. But the group wasn't actually as easy as, as I feel that people thought it was, if that makes sense. Copenhagen are a really strong team. They've got a really good uh, recruitment set up. Uh, they they recruit really good young talented players. Rooney Baji was a good example. Um, the the manager uh, Nistrup has done excellently excellent work. Uh, they're really well organised. Even Galatasaray, you know, it's a it's like a hard place to go and win games. And I feel I feel like that's one of the things with um, Manchester United at the moment. They they're not good enough to claim as if they're better than these bigger teams. Than these so, sorry the so called smaller teams. I, f- I felt like it was already a bit of complacency there. Copenhagen are a really really good side as I mentioned. Um, Neistrup's come out and said that you know we've we fully deserve to finish second and we're going to approach the last sixteen um, in the same way. Depending on who they get, I think I don't think you can write them off. Depending on who they get, I think a, a strong team will probably take them apart. But they showed in the games against Bayern, especially um, even in in the in the Allianz Arena, that, that they can go toe to toe with like the big teams as well and, and and give them a game. So I think there is a narrowing of the gap of sort of the so called small teams and and the so called big teams in the Champions League. Now there there, there isn't a massive difference. Um, as other teams in this competition, like Braga um, uh, and and Napoli, for example, if you want to, you know, look at them as at their success last season, have, have shown two things. First of all, we shouldn't uh, transform Copenhagen's uh, story into a fairy tale. They're by far the best, the most, uh, in the richest club in Denmark, and they win everything there. They've just done the double, and they're basically doing to the Danish league what Skontoriga used to do you know, in, in Latvia. So that's one thing. The second thing, though, I wondered if you knew what the Danish for white wall would be, because I have to say that section 12 in that stadium, when they all wear these outfits, which are a bit like um, uh, cameos or, or stand-in players in one flew over a cuckoo's nest mm, or something like that, yeah. or the ponchos, white blouses. Right? Yeah. yeah, the white ponchos is quite a sight. It's quite intimidating. Um, what do you think? It's like ghostly. Yeah, it's um, it's. 
I was going to say it looks slightly sinister. Um, yeah, it looks sinister. It, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't we just have one fairy tale without you saying the thing is, guys. That's just you know, can we just have one fairy tale that is genuine a fairy tale? Anyway, that'll do for part one. Uh, part two will uh, rattle through the rest of the Champions League games. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So Group B, then Arsenal win the group. PSV comes second. Uh, Lons beat Sevilla, uh, which means Sevilla are out of Europe, uh, despite uh, Sergio Ramos, Panenka, stud the goalkeeper, sort of classic Ramos moment. Um, But let's start with that Arsenal draw. They changed their side a lot. I mean, I guess, Mark, the interesting thing is that they they could have brought on some teenagers and they ended up bringing on Declan Rice and Ben White and Martin Odegaard because... Arteta says it wasn't the right context to play young players. But it's so hard to think of a better context to, to play young players, I guess. It, it does. It, and it does. It happens so often that, um, you know, we you hear managers complaining about the amount of games that, that are being played. And we've seen the, all the injuries that the, the players are getting now. And when there is the opportunity to completely rest everyone and sort of bring on loads of um, younger players uh, very rarely actually do do managers sort of take uh, that path I, I think it's it's maybe one of course Arsenal lost against Aston Villa and on sort of Saturday so maybe Arteta's just thinking there we don't want to suddenly go two games and then it becomes three and you know all of a sudden you've got a problem that that didn't need to be there and you, you're stopping the, the rot in inverted commas um, straight away. I think sometimes managers don't like to give opportunities to youngsters too early um, if they don't think they're ready or deserve it. And that can actually send out the wrong message um, of kind of that you've made it and they haven't. And so there, there's um, a protection and also maybe the sort of carrot and the stick there in terms of, you know, what, what a young player needs to do to actually reach that level of, say, I don't know, El Nenny um, or, or, or whatever it is. So I, I think that, often comes into the, um, the, the the minds of managers. But I was, yeah, I was a bit surprised that like Saliba played and, and Gabriel um, and then he is bringing on sort of real quality players. Um, but um, may, maybe Arteta's thinking about the, the greater need of the Premier League and these coefficient points. And um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it, 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 every point helps. Yeah, he, he, he wants Tottenham in fifth <laughs> to get in the Champions League doesn't he? Anyway, look, they've won the group. It's really good for them and it'd be really, really interesting to see how they uh, get on in the knockouts because I don't know what you think, Philippe, from an Arsenal point of view, but like, they, they could actually win the Champions League. Like, They've got the quality. It's difficult because other teams have been there and they haven't, but they could. Possibly could. I don't think they're favourites, but I think they would be second tier of favourites given the way that they've certainly toughened up, the way that they've... Uh, improved in terms of squad, the way that some players, the fact that Kai Havertz, for example, is really starting to look like the Kai Havertz we didn't know existed because we've been looking for Kai Havertz for a very long time. I, I, it's certainly something that um, that Mikel Arteta has, has put as a definite objective. It's not just a, just a league. It's very clear by what he says and the attitude of the players that uh, they consider it is an attainable objective, which is quite progress, isn't it? Hmm. Matt says, are the knockout stages of the Europa League legally allowed to take place if Sevilla aren't involved? Uh, obviously, Sevilla have an amazing record in this competition, Jonathan. But yeah, they were knocked out by uh, Lance. I, I think once Ramos scored that penalty, I think we all thought, ah, oh, Sevilla are going to get through. And then they didn't. And so it's just they're so good in this tournament that you just presume they'll always be in it. Yeah, but I mean, Philippe will be able to tell more about Lance and, you know, they're a very good side, in my opinion. At home. Uh, obviously, mm. beat Arsenal as well. Yeah, at home, beat Arsenal as well, got an intense stadium. I mean, you just talked about sort of Copenhagen's atmosphere. Lance can create a hell of an atmosphere as well, I think, with their fans. They have a good record against Spanish teams as well. I think they've lost one in their last nine um, in UEFA matches uh, against Spanish teams. So a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of 
curiosity there in that in that sense. But no, I think I think Lons have, have put in a, a decent effort in the, in, the, in the Champions League, considering it's been such a long time since they participated in it. And also, if you consider the recent history, you know the the, the rise of them uh, over the last sort of four or five years. So I think Lons have done magnificently, and that probably shouldn't be ignored. Sevilla, yeah, it's. Um, I'm not sure of Sevilla this I, I I didn't really think they were great in the games I saw this season. I don't know too much about what exactly is going on, gone on there, but no. I didn't feel this was like vintage, you know, Sevilla of old or who who you who you can stake, you know, you can put your hat on. It's them. certainly it's certainly vintage old Sevilla. I mean like it's certainly a team of very old. Yeah, people, yeah, yeah. In that sense. It? But yeah. but maybe it isn't it's not it's old vintage severe not vintage old severe or, or whichever way round it is but yeah anyway that, they'll be back next year almost certainly i mean group c real madrid top of the group they won all their games napoli in second um beat braga there was some jeopardy if braga had a big win against napoli but they didn't get it for real madrid mark um i mean you feel for union berlin right they had a pretty wretched campaign there was a nice story that they they had to stand opposite their ultras and get yelled at but actually the ultras went do you know what guys we're just really pleased you're in the champions league like don't stress about it it was like the opposite of those kind of marseille milan ultra moments they were just like guys it's all fine let's have a nice time we're doing okay um but for real madrid it's interesting that joselu is there. I mean, I, I don't know if I've got the sort of chupamotings about him. Just because he did play for Stoke, he therefore can't really be good. And maybe he is good. But like, he's because Vinicius is injured, right? He's sort of important to them now. Yeah, I, I think it depends on your level of, of good. I mean, he's, he's good in that he's a professional footballer, fully deserves to have had a you know professional football um, career. I don't think he's Real Madrid good um, and he's there um, because he's happy to be a backup. It's not easy to find somebody that you sure. know, knows their place within a squad and, you know, will come on and probably, you know, I, I'm assuming be very good in training and not kick up a fuss to Ancelotti that, you know, he can't go knocking on the door saying, you know, how, how can Vinicius be ahead of me? Um, Gaffer, <laughs> you know, so he has to, he, he oh, I hope know, he does. <laughs> so so he, he knows his place within the team. He offers something very different in that, um, you know, they've got mobile forwards that don't actually occupy the sort of penalty area, if you like, and Hosselu, um j- just gives them that um, sort of penalty box presence. Um, you know, if you were chasing a game, plan B, sort of whack it forward and hope for something in the last few minutes or to come in for a game like this where it doesn't, you know, really matter and you, you can um, save the legs because we've seen players like Diaz, for instance, come in and play with Rodrigo um, and you know, Bellingham essentially becomes the sort of furthest man forward. But um, yeah, you, I mean, I think Real Madrid were in a tricky spot when, you know, when, when Benzema left, they couldn't be sure they were getting Mbappe. And of course they didn't get Mbappe. They they needed somebody um, um, in there. And in the end, they went for a cheap option, um, probably to save their money for, um, you know, to, to, to offer probably to Kylian Mbappe in a few months' time. So um, he's, he's a sensible enough signing. But if they win the Champions League, I I don't think it will be down to Hosselu's brilliance. Could he be Real Madrid's Divock Origi? Rather than supermoting, that's the question. Well, possible. That is possible, isn't it? Where, 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 Jonathan? Do you have Real Madrid on your list of favourites? I feel like they're sort of level with Arsenal, which is a strange thing to say, really. Yeah, up front they're still a little. I mean, Jude Bellingham's almost carrying them in terms of goals at the moment. He's he's been so so good. His, his transfer has just been incredible. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, Hossolu isn't exactly Karen Benzema. So uh, I think. They've got a good chance, but I still I, I think I think there are worries probably about their maybe the the, the defense and the the, the the sort of the balance of the team as well at times in games. So I think they're gonna you know you can never write off Real Madrid and they're an excellent club at that you know once once you get to the knockout stages Real Madrid just have that aura about them. I know we, we spoke about Arsenal just now, but I do feel like they do have a decent chance. I think the Champions League is quite open this season. I, I don't think there's like a clear sort of second or third favorites really. So um. You'd expect to see them in the semi-finals, but I, I could equally imagine seeing, for example, Arsenal in the semi-finals. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned defensively, defensively not um, you know as solid. There was one that one of the Union Berlin goals. I don't know what Dav- David Alaba was doing, but it was absolutely sort of sensational Sunday League kind of just like oh, I'll just try and kick this somewhere and just sort of lobbed it to a Union Berlin player to to slot it home. Um, or did he head it home? I, I 
can't remember now. Mark, you maybe remember. You can't slot home a header. No, you uh, can't. Of no, course, you was, can't. Uh, it was it was Volan's goal. I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember. Exactly. I mean, I sort of yeah, I was only focusing on the Alaba mistake. Really. Yes, of course. Um, that was the only bit that sort of from that goal that I can sort of take. Despite any like concerns about them, they still got 100 percent record from this group stage. So you've also got to acknowledge that in when it yeah. comes to Europe, they. They kind of know what they're doing, Real Madrid. And when Chouameni comes back, they will have the best young midfield in Europe. And that's uh, no discussion. Camavinga, Chouameni, Bellingham, tell me if there's anything better or if there will be anything better in the year or two years to come. I don't think so. Yeah, producer Joel has that he did slot it home. So it wasn't a header from the Alaba mistake. Um, but, yeah, so Real Madrid won all their games, including beating Napoli twice. Um, Napoli threw in second, beating Braga 2-0. Um, quite a comical own goal. And quite a comical Victor Osserman finish as well. Um, uh, they're having a tricky season domestically. Um, so it, it'll be nice to see uh, Napoli doing well this year. We all thought they'd be the team that could surprise everyone, but they sort of ran out of gas last year, didn't they? Uh, Group D, Sociedad win it into a second. They drew nil-nil. Um, um, and we'd mentioned Sociedad in in the, uh, the coefficient chat of earlier, Mark. But like, h- how good are they? Yeah, I mean... Didn't show up much in in this game, um, but earlier on in the, the, the campaign, being one of the sort of teams to take out of the group stage, the way that they've played, the way that they've pressed, um, very well coached, got a lot of sort of younger players that are um, progressing. A few of making it through now to the Spanish national team as well, and winning the the difference between winning the group and finishing second. I mean, looking at who's going to win um, the groups could be absolutely massive this time around. And so for them to go to San Siro and get the draw, huge for them because, you know, you might end up you, you, you might end up winning the group and maybe getting Paris Saint-Germain. But the chances of getting a smaller team are, are, are greater. And so you have to give yourself the best opportunity. And from Inter's point of view... I couldn't believe that they um, were resting players. I thought that was a, such a big game to not have um, Lautaro uh, Martinez, um, you know, playing and Barella. Um, to me, that that was a big mistake, and um, yeah, they're almost certainly going to pay for it because looking at the teams that are going to win the groups, there, there'll be outsiders, I think, to qualify against any of the the, the group winners, and um, yeah, it might be the difference between them making the quarterfinals and and Sociedad. So. Um, I, I think Inzaghi placed a little bit too much faith in his sort of backups um, and, and paid the price. You asked me if uh, where Madrid could finish. I think Inter are actually one of the strongest teams in the Champions League this season. Uh, I think they've got a real chance potentially of going maybe not maybe back to the final again. I think I think Inzaghi's done an incredible job um, in terms of like the way they play. Um, they can counter attack well. The, the way they spread the ball around, like the build up. I feel like they're a really, really strong team, actually. And I think they're a little bit underrated. It kind of got overlooked how well they did in the final last year, for example, against City. And yeah, I just think they're, they're a team to keep an eye on, definitely in the knockout stages. Into, so I just wanted to give them a bit of bit more of a mention because I feel right. they could be strong. So do I believe you or Mark? I, that's a very difficult... In, in this know. particular game, I, you know, I'm not sure. But I, I think in general, in terms of the context of the competition, how they're, how they're performing under Inzaghi, I feel, feel they're a strong team. I would say I've, I've no problem with, with, with the quality of Inter. I just think not winning the group is going to make life very tough for them. Benfica lost their first four games of this Champions League group stage, and yet they've qualified uh, for the Europa League. Uh, they needed to win, um, and they needed to win 3-1, basically, and they did, or by two clear goals, didn't they? And and um, they did that in the last minute with a back heel from Cabral. What a wonderful moment uh, for them, and a bit of a shame for RB Salzburg, so Benfica will be in the Europa League. Uh, uh, just quickly in the EFL, Johnny... Um, Someone called Johnny tweeted, not us, but just sent a tweet. My favourite statistic of the night and perhaps the week or perhaps the year. Tonight is the first time Leeds United have named a starting eleven in which all players were born after Tony Yeboah's goal against Liverpool. Um, and it turned out, and they lost 1-0 at Sunderland. So the, clearly the message is they should always field somebody born before that goal. Uh, yes, Mark? I just want to say as well, um, on a night when Manchester United went out of the Champions League and maybe bemoaning coaching ideas and philosophy, um, somebody they had at the club uh, in Kieran McKenna is continues to you know work his magic with Ipswich. You got on, and you know went top of the table with another um, sort of crucial away win. So uh, maybe there's a lesson there that, um, that there were solutions maybe inside the club. 
Yeah, yeah. They uh, won at Watford, and uh, on Saturday, the early kickoff is uh, it's the carrot munching East Anglian derby, uh, uh, Norwich against Ipswich. Okay, that'll do for part two. Uh, part three, we'll do any other business. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all in one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, so a Turkish football club president, you'll probably have seen it, has been arrested after punching a referee following a top flight game on Monday. MKE Ankara Guchu president Faruk Koka ran onto the pitch, um, struck the match official Halil Umut Mela after his team conceded a 97th minute equaliser um, in a one-all draw with Kaikur Rizaspor. He's since apologised. I apologise to the Turkish referee community, sports public and our nation, no matter how great injustice or wrong it is. Nothing can legitimise or explain the violence that I committed, which I definitely did not desire. Uh, the justice minister um, said that Koka and two others were formally arrested for injuring a public official. Uh, to all Turkish league football has been suspended following the incident. Pierluigi Kalina, FIFA's referees chief, said that there are thousands of refs around the world who are verbally and physically abused at lower levels of the game across the world. Uh, they're unknown. The vast majority of them are young referees early in their careers. A referee cannot be beaten because of a decision they took, even if it's wrong. His or her car cannot be bombed or set on fire because of a penalty kick. Unfortunately, this is not an exaggeration. As car bombs and cars are being set on fire is something that's happened in some countries and not so rarely. It is a responsibility for all those who love the beautiful game to take action and to do something before it's too late, before this cancer will kill football. Um, which is all right, isn't it, Philippe? Absolutely. I don't think that we have um, anything to say that apart from the fact that what happened was utterly appalling because uh, that was a proper punch as well. You saw the pictures of the poor referee after the game. My goodness. Mm. Absolutely right that some action should be taken. And the situation in Turkey is just crazy. Referees are a fair game there uh, in the media as well. I was reading about it. I mean, uh, reading about the fact that uh, Turkish newspapers uh, do publish, like uh, they do docs referees, you know, in print. Uh, they also do analysis of their mistakes uh, and they analyse how these mistakes are favouring this team and uh, are harming that other team. So they're really feeding up this fire. And so therefore, something has got to to be done very quickly in, in Turkey. The one thing that I find a little bit um, regrettable is the fact that I wish that UEFA and FIFA had been as quick and swift to respond to assaults on referees in the past. But that hasn't been the case. This seems to allow two rules. But perhaps the fact that this incident is so serious um, will lead UEFA and FIFA um, to actually look at it and to be far stronger uh, in their response to this type of events, which unfortunately are becoming more and more frequent and which also should serve as a reminder for us. And I really mean all of us, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. I include myself in this, uh, to think twice about our comments, even jocular comments when a referee makes a mistake or we talk about a VAR mistake or so forth, because we're fanning the fire. And and it, it leads to this, and it will lead to more serious things in the in the future. While we're on uh, uh, referees, um, Howard Webb did the rounds on his uh, VAR uh, chat, uh, and the main point of interest was um, Simon Hooper not playing advantage for Man City at the end when Erling Haaland, with all his hair, was uh, uh, so angry about it. Um, it's an officiating mistake, and the VAR has no part to play in this, said Howard Webb. We're always looking as officials to have positive influences on the game by trying to identify occasions when we can allow the game to play through an advantage. He decides to penalise just at the moment as the ball's about to go. He blows the whistle, then realises that a wonderful advantage was available. He was devastated. He'd refereed the game really well for 93 minutes, but he knew this is going to be the only talking point. It would have been a wonderful advantage. So people make mistakes. He made a mistake. We move on. Mike says, what does the panel make of the new amortisation plan and where does this leave Chelsea? Uh, this is the news that Premier League clubs have voted to limit the period over which a player's transfer fee can be spread in their accounts to five years, regardless of the length of contract. Chelsea 
are the sort of most well-known for this amortization, amortization of an eight-year contract. So it helps you with FFP. Uh, the rule change will not be backdated to include transfers that have already happened or contracts already signed. Brings the Premier League in line with UEFA, which sets its own five-year limit on transfer fee amortization, amortization in June. Um, so it feels like Mark Chelsea come out of this quite well because they've amortised everyone and now no one can amortise anything. None of us can be amortised anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I wondered what way Chelsea were going to vote. Um, in in and uh, yeah, um, big surprise that they 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 came down the way they did. I, I think um, it makes sense. Um, you know, <laughs> Chelsea. I mean, they they believe they found a loophole. Um, I mean, the performances on the pitch might suggest um, that he, he, he might maybe not gone down the right path. But um, I, I I do think that you know teams. I just got we'll just look for other ways to kind of. Um, make FFP work for them. Um, and um, I don't see it being a, a huge difference sort of to, to how most people were, were trading, but what Chelsea and, and that there's sort of highest profile, I suppose, example of it did feel quite odd. Um, and I, I, it makes sense for Premier League to fall in line uh, with UEFA. I think um, you, you want people competing um, in the same competitions to abide by the same rules where possible. I think um, it's not always um, the, the way you can go about it but um, it, it does feel like you should all be playing to, to, to the, the same rules Will Billy Crystal do a, a follow-up to analyse this called Amortise This featuring Mikala Mudrik and Moses Caicedo what a film that would be um, Jonathan your hand is raised Yeah I mean I think the, the thing to point out I think that may confuse some people is this is this is an accounting trick it's not like it's not the rule doesn't state that you can't sign players on contracts more than five years because I feel like there's some, well, some people I spoke to, there's a bit of confusion. It's more, it's more about how the contracts are dealt with in the financial accounts. So they can only be spread over that five-year cost. Because I think, you know, so for example, if you pay 100 million, the cost of that is spread over the five years as an accounting trick. Um, I think Destiny New Doggy just signed a seven-year deal at Spurs yesterday, right? A new deal till 2030. So I think for those, just a bit, for a bit of clarity, um, pl- clubs can still sign players on longer contracts, I think, than five years. But they 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 have to be paid off. The, the amortization amortization of that um, is over the five years, which I think is is fair, really. And I mean, if Chelsea haven't had much praise or kind of uh, you know anything positive to say, but I guess in that sense they 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 did find a bit of a loophole, as, as Mark's mentioned there. Um, but it's been quickly closed off, I suppose. So they're going to have to find a different way to to um, sort of get around some of these. Uh, accounting, accounting um, tricks in 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 the, in the FFP rules. It, Mark, I, but I just wanted to clarify. So I've got a question for you, Mark, because I'm asking you the question because I don't have the answer. And does that mean that Chelsea will have to prepare two different sets of accounts, or would have had to prepare two different sets of accounts had they qualified for a European competition? God, it would make that Black Books episode incredibly long, wouldn't it? With Dylan Moran doing his <laughs> doing his uh, uh, tax return. Um, I don't know if I need Chelsea to do... Uh, Chelsea's having to leaf through one... Not that I obviously have leafed through one set of Chelsea's accounts, but for those who are so inclined, to have to do it twice would really be overkill, wouldn't it? Uh, Jake says, what does Mark's Christmas dinner look like? Stephen says, will Mark just have turkey and pigs in blankets at Christmas lunch? And what, what sort of dessert? Suet using the Christmas pudding to ensure meat theme continues? I'm sure we've had this conversation, Mark, haven't we? Well, Max, Max, this is where the, the kind of the... Uh... It all began. It's where it all began when I did a mic test on a boxing day. And instead of what did you have for breakfast, your question was, what did you have for Christmas dinner? Right. And then when I reeled off what I had for Christmas dinner, you said, where's the vegetables? And that was, that was, um, and then so, he was like, well, so save it for the pod, save it for the pod. So um, that, that was, um, that, that, that was how it started. In terms of dessert, I mean, I, I do eat a lot on Christmas um, day. So it I would should, actually be quite hope so heavy. Too. Come on, talk us through it. Here we go. So um, star would usually be some kind of um, prawn cocktail, um, you know, maybe with a bit of lobster tail in there um, uh, as well. Uh, the, the sort of the, the main centerpiece of, of the day would involve controversially Yorkshire pudding, but we would we would go for Yorkshire pudding on on even it's at kind Christmas. of a vegetable in your world, I guess. Isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it takes up takes up potentially too much real estate, but it is there. Um, you've you've got your um, turkey, pigs in blankets, um, plenty of roast potatoes, um, and sausage meat is kind of on there as well with, with the pigs in blankets. So that that's what the the main. Um, Sorry, entails. can I just show you? Do you have pigs in blankets and sausage meat as two yes. separate things? 
no, yeah, I have both of yeah, both of those. Yeah, so we have yeah. pigs in blankets, and then yeah. I have some sausage meat as well. <laughs> where, where a lot of people might have say stuffing, I'll have um, some sausage meat, um, and then for dessert, usually some like, sticky toffee pudding and, and right, custard. Okay. Then we right. might go for some cheese, and we'll uh, we'll finish up quite late with a seafood um, platter. Um, so yeah, good day. How's that seafood platter fitting in? Where's that come from? That, that a late girl's seafood of, platter. I'd say that comes out. Sort of about nine o'clock. Right. Um, and where are the quality streets in all of this? Sort of all through the day? I'm I'm not a huge I'm not a huge chocolate eater, man. I, I like to look after the body where I can. Yeah, of course, um, so, of course. Yeah. Um, where I, I can yeah, is I doing a lot of heavy lifting there, mate, isn't it? <laughs> so I don't I, I probably won't eat any chocolates on, on Christmas Day. But you have some butter? Oh well oh, yeah, yeah that well I'm uh, usually a crumpet starter, uh in terms of breakfast. So um yeah, you can imagine the amount of uh work the butter does on, on those crumpets. Charlie says, is Barry taking a break to avoid sending all us listeners a flutter too often? Uh, this is in relation to the comedian Chloe Petz, who was on the Football Clichés podcast the other day, and they'd just been talking about um, Barry's acceptance speech at the FSAs for Pod of the Year. Thank you, by the way, for voting for us. And then they brought Chloe on, who said, and this is a quote, I don't get starstruck apart from around football pundits, so the mention of Barry Glendenning sent me all a quiver. I am very torn about whether to mention this to Barry, um, I, I, you know, perhaps we should because, uh, you know, it'll make him feel 10 feet tall. Uh, but it was a lovely... Thank you, Chloe. Uh, delighted to hear it on Barry's behalf. Uh, and a lovely email from Hugo uh, uh, to finish off. says, hi, Max, Barry and Co. I hope this message finds you well. Amongst the chaos of moving to a new country and entering into the working world, I never got a chance to thank the pod for the massive amount of support myself and my friends received a while ago. I don't know if you remember... But I wrote to you guys about my suicide awareness efforts back in May of last year, and I was deeply touched by the incredible support from the Football Weekly family. The support meant the world to me, and I wanted to share the incredible achievement all of you helped make possible. We raised a remarkable €6,547, which will be used by Darkness into Light to help fund therapists, talk to 541 people in distress, support 65 dedicated therapy sessions, or provide 145 crisis counselling sessions. This is an astounding achievement. I wanted to thank everyone who reached out, donated, and helped spread awareness. It was so touching to hear from so many of you and all of your individual stories. You have no idea the potential difference you've made to so many people who need it most. I also want to give special thanks to both Max and Barry. I wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to touch base and exchange stories with so many listeners, which was a really heartwarming experience. I don't know if you are aware, but a common theme from many of the Football Weekly listeners I spoke to was how the pod never fails to brighten up their day and how much of a difference it makes to their lives. You guys are making a real difference to so many people's lives. So thank you. Keep up the great work. I look forward to reading your book when I get home for Christmas. All the best, Hugo. Thank you, Hugo. And, uh, you know, more importantly than any of us, thank you to all the listeners who, on the occasions we do those kind of things, uh, it is really heartwarming to know that it's a, you know, without getting too trite about it, it is a family and, you know, like listeners from over the world getting in touch with Hugo was like very moving to see from, from our point of view as well. So thank you. And thank you for your email. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, Football Weekly at theguardian.com if you want to get in touch. Uh, and that'll do for today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Max. Huge fan of pigs in blankets and sausage meat. That's just so utterly <laughs> tremendous. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. You're welcome, Max. Thank you. Thanks, Billy. Thank you, Max. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.